I am Citizen 44. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 58. On today's show, we have Joshua Bradley. Known Josh for several years. He moved to uh, Santa Cruz about four years ago and uh, has been battling some serious illness for the past six years and has finally come out on the other side, I'm very happy to say. His story is extraordinary. His recovery is unbelievable, and what he's accomplished is only something he can describe. Here's my chat with Josh. What's up, Joshua? How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you, man? I'm good. Are you in Santa Cruz? Yeah. How far are you from the beach? Uh, a mile. How much do you love that with all the kids? Oh man, that's the best. If I even knew this was an option, I probably would have never even ended up in Southern Oregon. I would have just come here. Ashland's kind of the same way in the sense that you're living somewhere where people want to go, like where people spend their vacation time. And the advantage of having the ocean is you're like, oh crap, we can just go to the beach every day. How long have you been there now? Um, four years. How'd you swing that? Well, it actually came because of my health problems, I'd kind of outstripped the care in Southern Oregon, and they told me, you've got to go somewhere else, we can't help you. And they were trying to push me to go to Portland, I was like, I don't want to go to Portland. And Amanda went to school down here, and kind of grew up in Pacifica, went to high school there. We came down on a trip just to check it out, because I'd never been. She's like, oh, we should go to Santa Cruz. Only a couple times in my life, really on the beach. So we got here and I was like, holy crap, and smell the eucalyptus, and I just knew I'm going to need to be here to be healthy. I just have to be here. And I was still really sick, and I was driving down here for like three months. I was looking at houses, and it was tough because we had all the girls, so we had to like prep them. This is what we're thinking of doing, here's why. They didn't really know this seriousness of what was going on. I mean, they knew I was really sick, but they didn't know how serious it was and how much we needed to get out of there. But um, it wasn't hard to make the case to move to the beach. As it turns out, it's a lot easier. <laughs> Where we live, it's backed up against the base of the Santa Cruz Mountains, and there's this huge area called the Poganet. It's got trails all through it, like dozens of miles of trails. And then the Redwoods right behind the ocean right in front of us, so biking everywhere, there's swimming, surfing. One of the things that was really interesting was that I was born in Juneau in Alaska, which is very similar in the sense that it's ocean and mountains, and there's no gap between them. And the city ends out the mountains. And I hadn't ever really identified with the ocean before at all, because I kind of grew up in a ski resort town for most of my life. And so I always identified with being in the mountains. But when I got here, I was like, oh my God, this is lining up with my whole genetic makeup. I have to be here. So we did. And yeah, it took like another six months and some really hard stuff before I got into Stanford for medical care. Yeah, this place to a very large degree saved my life. What are you doing now? Are you healthy? I am. Actually, I just had an infusion yesterday, medical infusion, and I always get my blood work done. And it's 
the healthiest I've ever been and the best my blood markers I've ever been. I had near unmeasurable levels of inflammation, which really has been kind of the big problem. Yeah, and you know, I rode a single speed bike 550 miles, so <laughs> I'm headed towards uh, triathlon this fall as well. Actually, maybe two. And where is that happening and how is that happening? Well, there's one in Santa Cruz. There's a whole bunch in Santa Cruz. There's even a half Ironman here. But um, I'm not going to do the half Ironman. I've never done a triathlon before. I've never really been a runner. I've only recently started running, and I do swim some. But, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like I woke up inside of a Ferrari after being in, like, a junk truck that was scheduled to be destroyed and then just blinked, woke up in a Ferrari, and so I'm a little bit like, let's see what this thing can do. And then the other one is in Sonoma County, and it's a fundraiser for Crohn's Foundation, I think Colitis, but I think I'm gonna do that one as well, and that's in October, which will be really pretty cool, because it's, I mean, that's, that's what I have. First of all, how long were you sick? Um, well, it's funny because retroactively, like you can actually see when things started a little better. Like hindsight's always twenty twenty. But what happened was in July of two thousand twelve, I got really sick, really physically ill, very quickly, and I was losing a pound a day for three months. So I lost ninety pounds in three months, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. They couldn't stop it, and they had to do a pretty intense medical intervention to keep me alive with steroids, a whole cocktail of steroids. At the time, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, which is one of the two forms of inflammatory bowel disease. So there's ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, and they're similar but separate things. And I actually don't really fit into either one. There's some talk that there's maybe a third one that fits more of what happened with me. The way that they discovered that was they did this blood test, and my inflammation levels were so high that the lab in Arizona flew somebody to Medford to meet with my doctor to find out if I was a real human and if I was getting treated because they'd never seen levels that high before. So there's a bunch of inflammation markers. One of the ones that they measure the most is called CRP or C-reactive protein. It's a good measurement for people who are at risk of stroke or heart attack. So essentially it's the level of inflammation circulating. And so they have measurements, obviously, as a, the amount of it in the blood, the C-reactive protein, and the normal range is two to four, and mine was at 210. And it wasn't a fluke, which was part of what they were trying to figure out. I was at near or at that level for several years, and the only way that they could keep it down was with extremely high doses of prednisone. Steroids are really incredible things, and they can save your life, but they're not something you want to be on for a very long time. They hadn't really fixed me being sick. They were just suppressing the inflammation with the steroids, and so I was on this roller coaster of really steep downhill drops and illness, followed by kind of like manic recoveries, where I like gained and lost entire people in this process of weight. You know, I'm just like going all over the map. I have this really bizarre photo of all the photos from the first year before I was sick. And I think it was like a year, maybe two years later. And it's insane. Like, I don't even look like the same person in any photo. And the physical transformation was so extreme that 
people that knew me, closest friends, wouldn't recognize me on the street. So yeah, it was really intense. Part of the bigger problem was that I was hitting like all of the sort of small percentage complications that nobody really ever gets. I was that guy falling down this ladder of complications after complications after complications and ended up with an emergency surgery in Ashland in for them to get you a proper diagnosis and treatment? So we got here, you know, the, the medical environment, the insurance and just the system in, in and of itself, as most people know or many people know, is really challenging. So I couldn't really get any care once we got here. And I ended up really sick in the ER in the hospital in Santa Cruz. And at this point, I had a temporary ostomy, so they had the emergency surgery, they disconnected my colon with the idea that they would put it back together. And in the meantime, they put in a stoma, which is essentially like a port on the outside of your body. So all of your bowel movements are coming out of your stomach, your abdomen. And that had gotten totally wrecked. So they sent me to a wound clinic in Watsonville, which is just south of Santa Cruz by about 15 miles or so. And I made my appointment to go in and I went in and the woman who was the nurse at this wound clinic was my ostomy nurse after my emergency surgery in Ashland. She had become a traveling nurse and she just fluke. She was at this wound clinic in Watsonville for a total of three weeks. And I just happened to drop in her lap. And so she knew everything about what had happened to me and she knew she knew my whole story. I didn't have to like start over. And she took one look at me and said, we're not gonna be able to help you in Santa Cruz anywhere. You've gotta get to Stanford. And she got me into Stanford pretty much immediately. And I immediately was getting care from a gastroenterologist and we were consulting with a surgeon. And for the first two years of that, the idea was to try to get me put back together to have like a, a whole intact, colon, just like a real boy. And 
we were on that sort of track, but I, again, I kept hitting all of these weird complications. And so the things that started to turn the ship around had a lot to do with, they ended up putting me on this medicine called Remicade, which is an infusion. Typically every eight weeks you go in, you sit for two hours, and they put this, they call it a chemo, just because it's a chemical substance. And they're giving it to me every five weeks because I just burned through a lot of the medicine really quickly. But the other thing that happened at a similar time when I moved was, I again, because the doctors were so helpless, I suddenly switched modes and decided I have to figure this out or I'm not going to make it. Like, I have to go into my own research and figure out how to take care of myself. So that kind of started this sort of biohacker's journey that ultimately led to where I'm at in combination with the medication that I received at Stanford. That's pretty interesting. You called yourself a biohacker. You seem like a techie dude. And that must have been a very fascinating part of your journey is diving into the info part on your own. And what did you uncover and how quickly were you able to start taking care of your own body? Well, it was pretty incredible because at this point, it was a little bit like a PhD in research on myself. So I dove really deep into genetics, epigenetic, so how the genes are expressing themselves, microbiome, mitochondrial health, so cellular health and energy production, and metabolic health. I wasn't really able to work. So I was kind of taking on very small projects that I could work on. And then the rest of the time, basically just doing research on myself and measuring things, tracking all kinds of stuff from food to I have four years of data on my microbiome and my gut. I have all my genetic data. I have four years of food tracking, supplement tracking. And so I was just tracking down what I knew of what was happening to me and then essentially creating my own treatment experiments to see what would work. Some of those made a really big difference, ketogenic diet being one of the biggest ones and the bike being another one, which has its own story as well. But, you know, the medication was really interesting because it never solved the problem either. I still was 10, 20 times normal inflammation, but it was kind of keeping the fire down enough, I think, that these other things that I was doing really had a chance to reset my body. And in hindsight, looking backwards, it felt like seeing an autopsy report. Like it was really clear to see why everything happened the way it happened. It was like a domino. This thing got tripped and then all these other genetic mutations played into the perfect storm. But that's like a static thing. It's not actually what's happening. It's just what you have, like the chinks in your armor, basically. What was that initial kink in the armor? What happened that the domino effect led to such a debilitating and caustic condition for you? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think that I probably, to some degree, lived with some levels of autoimmune disease, probably most of my adult life, and inflammation, but it just never reached that super boiling point. The boiling point really came down to the time when all this happened. I was recently divorced. My business partner at the time had left me with the business and moved to San Francisco. One of my primary mentors and somebody who I spent a lot of time with had passed away. My doctors were already worried about me because just the amount of stress that was happening, there was a pretty good chance that something bad was going to happen. Also, during that divorce process, I had to get 
license strands. Then I had to take a take a physical and they do a blood test. And one of the things they did was an HIV test. And it came back inconclusive, which set off a whole range of response, obviously. The nugget out of that was it took several months of taking multiple tests and they kept coming back. They kept coming back. I was at pretty much zero risk to actually have HIV, but they couldn't figure out why my tests were coming back bad. So eventually I did a viral load where they count the amount of the HIV virus in your blood and I had zero. And the doctors at the time didn't really know what to do with that. What I know now is that the bands that were being triggered in that Western blot test, HIV test, are often tripped by autoimmune disorders. So this was happening at some point before the fire got totally lit because this was a full year before I got quote-unquote sick. And honestly, you know, I was, I was overweight. I was probably 240 pounds. I ate fairly well and I had a relatively active lifestyle, but I was always getting bigger, which at this point was just all that inflammation. So when I look at pictures of myself, and before all this happened, it actually looks like I'm sick, as opposed to looking at myself now. I understand what was going on to some degree. And so the stress was probably a combination of stress, maybe environmental, could have been exposure to glyphosate through corn or something like, you know, some combination of those things is what triggered these genetic weaknesses. And there are a few that were really important. One of them is called the MTHFR gene which limits your ability to process folate, which is really important for all of your methylation cycles. So basically, like, running the whole organism of your body runs through these methylation cycles, and if they're damaged or not running properly, that's when you start to see issues. And I happen to have two mutations of this gene, which means that I'm processing only about 10% of the folate that I'm taking in. So my whole methylation profile was kind of a train wreck. And then when that starts to break down, kind of the next thing in there, there are genes associated with essentially how your body responds to stress and inflammation. And so those were kind of the next down the line to fall. There's a pretty good book that came out this year called Dirty Genes. There's a lot of data around health stuff, but it really was like a profile of me. Like, if you wanted to get an anti version, you know, the anti example of what he was talking about in his book, I was that guy. So that pattern initially was really overwhelming because it's kind of like an autopsy report. It was really depressing. I had to like set it aside and come back to it when I felt a little more sort of emotionally stable around it because it was pretty intense and I was pretty sick at the time. So it just felt really hopeless. But starting to counteract, particularly that MTHFR, MTHFR gene, really allowed for some basic function to start back up again. And kind of the next thing that went off from there was I was listening to a webinar by a doctor and he was talking about gut health and he was actually saying, you have to heal your neurology, you have to heal your cellular health before you can really heal whatever is going on with the gut. Because if you don't, you're just chasing this gut dysfunction all the time. If you're not generating healthy cells on a regular basis, it makes it really difficult to or impossible to actually heal. You may kind of put band-aids over what's happening and feel better, but you're not really healing. You just described the illness of the world. Yeah. So that 
that really changed my focus from really what everybody talks about with leaky gut and all that kind of stuff. I, I was still sensitive to what I was doing with regards to taking care of my digestion and my gut health, but I really became focused on cellular health, in particular mitochondrial health. And that, I think, was the factor that started to really turn the ship around. How did you address being involved with your own healing in that way? Well, you know, a lot of it started with looking at things like intermittent fasting, which is essentially like trying to do like fasted state for longer periods of time. Fasting is becoming a pretty hot topic now and what it can do for you metabolically, like how it can reset things and being used for cancer treatment and all kinds of really incredible stuff. So I was getting into fasting as a way to kick off what's called cell senescence, which is essentially damaged cells being flushed out of your body. So your body recognizing these cells are damaged and they get rid of them. And fasting is a really good way to kind of kick that off. And then sort of simultaneously, I was experimenting with a lot of supplements and nootropics that essentially affect your brain. There's supplements that are geared to enhance brain performance. And I was doing it as a way to get at mitochondrial health, which is mitochondria, as my kids always say, every time I say mitochondria, is the powerhouse of the cell. So if you want to create healthy, energetic cells, healthy mitochondria is what you need. And nothing uses more of that than essentially your brain. So these compounds, which people are using to sharpen their brain focus and all that kind of stuff, I was really using to try to create energy in my cells. And that strategy started to work. And when I got to the bike, which really came about because, as I said, I was in this game of, we're going to put you back together. So like, it was kind of a cycle of every three months, I would go back to my GI doctor and my surgeon and they'd do scans and stuff and they'd say, well, it's not ready yet, come back in three months. And I kind of hit a wall with that and they said, look, we don't know that you can really do this for very much longer. We need to probably make a permanent surgery. And that was really overwhelming. And I felt like I had no agency at all. And I really realized like this process is only partially within my control, meaning that I can influence it, but I can't control what's happening to me. And I was sliding really quickly into some pretty dark, depressive states. And up to that point, I really tried to maintain a positive outlook on things because I think it's important to staying healthy or healing. And it was hard. I was really in a bad spot. And I listened to a podcast and got tripped up on the idea of essentially creating a game as a way to, one, give yourself some of that agency, and two, allow yourself to be able to accomplish things, even if it's at a relatively small scale. So the bike became that. And I didn't even know if I could ride a bike because I had all the surgery in my rear end. I didn't know if I could sit down. But I went for a bike ride and it felt like riding a bike for the first time when you were a kid. And I was like, I just want to ride a bike. So my game became, can I reasonably train to ride my bike on this 50 mile Ram Fondo at the Seattle Classic in six weeks? sort of irrespective of my health at that point. And I was in pretty bad shape. I had 
that's a Jehania I have a prolapse stoma which means that it's actually kind of detached and coming out of your body I was kind of a mess but I did it and I set up a training plan to how it was going to happen I didn't know if I could do it I bought a bike off the internet and it showed up and it had one gear so that's how I ended up on a single speed bike and I, I really just I didn't want to deal with the complications of things. I just wanted to see if I could get on something, pedal for a long way. And I was successful at that, which was a really incredible experience. What I didn't anticipate was that that training process and even the single gear ignited this entire sort of tidal wave, turning this ship around, which kind of was starting to feel like that Titanic. And in fact, ultimately became the mode of, of which all this healing happened. Just moments ago, you said you had no control or you had limited control. But when you changed your mind and took control through that unknowingly, but maybe intuitively, and you had to trust it, you did take total control and uh, were manifesting your own healing. Yeah, and I think that that's the important thing was that it felt like I was needing to control the process of what was happening to me. But what I really needed to do was engage with how I was choosing to go through the process. It had everything to do with how I was feeling about myself and how I was feeling about my body and how I was feeling about what I could do. And that's actually the control. So you can't always change what's happening to you, right? You can't always affect outside forces, whether it's in your relationships or acts of God, tornadoes, whatever. You can't control the life that's coming at you, but you can control how you feel about it as you move through. So that became my mission. And at the same time I was doing the bike, I also started a meditation practice and a yoga practice. And almost three years into a consecutive daily meditation practice of about 30 minutes a day, which I think has had an equal, maybe a more foundational effect in the healing process as well. It's really sort of the ground which with everything else gets built upon. And again, because autoimmune diseases in general are essentially triggered by stress and magnified by stress. Stress is the kryptonite for any autoimmune condition, which is an interesting area of research, I think. So I knew that I had to be able to manage that component of it. And I had meditated in my life previously and read all the sort of brain studies around hooking monks up to brain scanners and seeing what could be done. And they decided that about 30 minutes a day for three months, you really start to make changes in your brain. So that was my initial game. Again, I, I started looking at everything as these little experiments. Can I do this for this long? And if I measure where I'm at at the beginning and measure where I'm at at the end, I'll have some sense of what I've accomplished. And so that's the biohacking, not just doing something, but actually measuring it before and after so that you know what you can do and if you need to repeat it. Did you ever consider doing an ayahuasca ceremony? Because it sounds like a couple of those might have actually reset your whole DNA from the get-go. Yeah. It may have, yeah. I mean, I've known people that have done it. To be honest, I was in such a fragile state. Getting even to that kind of ceremonial place would have been really difficult. I mean, all the stuff that I was doing was really pretty insular in the sense a lot of what was happening was inside. The only thing really external was the bike. And again, that was kind of like a solo journey. And there's a million ways to end up where you are, but that was 
capacity. I felt like I had a pretty limited capacity to do much of anything. So I was really trying to stay focused on what I felt like I could do. And again, that was kind of like the thing with the single speed bike. I don't want to think about changing gears. I don't want to think about mechanics. I just want to pedal. And as it turns out, the really interesting thing about the single speed bike is in a bike with 21 gears, you can switch to a gear at any time. You can kind of just ride forever because there's enough gearing there to where you can compensate for any kind of muscular or energy tiredness. You can almost pedal a, a modern bike for a really long ways anyway. But single speed, you've only got one. And if you push your body repeatedly in the same way consistently, it has to figure it out. That's what your body's meant to do. Your body's meant to adapt to the environment that it's in in order to perpetuate its survival. So by training, not just riding bike, but actually I had a really pretty regimented training schedule of how I could get to this 50 miles. By doing it consistently and doing it every time, like all my training, with only this one option, my body had to figure it out. There were days where I would take easy rides and then there were days where I would ride up into the Santa Cruz Mountains and see how far I could go and then just turn around when I couldn't pedal anymore. Those distances got larger and larger and my ability to do that got larger and larger. And I mean, that's how I approached the age ride, which was 550 miles, was from a very similar standpoint. And I rode every mile. I rode up all the mountains. I climbed the equivalent of 23,000, almost 24,000 feet with one gear over seven days with an autoimmune disease. So I, again, I hadn't really planned that as the outcome, but it really was like a force multiplier in the change. How did yeah, you end up doing that ride? In 2017, some of Amanda's friends who live in San Francisco had done the ride before and they were doing the ride in 2017 with their daughter who was graduating from high school and they invited me to do it because they knew I had been riding my bike. So I signed up to do it in 2017. I elected for the permanent surgery at the end of 2016 and essentially it was kind of like three-part major surgery. They created a permanent ostomy, permanent stoma and closed off the bottom half of my body for business forever. What does that mean? They removed a portion of my colon, but at that point, by the time we got to the permanent surgery, I had healed almost 80% of my colon through all these processes that I was going through. And so they only had to remove a relatively small amount by what the original, they originally were gonna take probably the opposite, about 80% of what was there. My payoff was already kind of in place. And actually, we thought we were gonna be able to put me back together and everything was gonna be okay. And I went in for the final check to do that. And the lower half of my disconnected colon had created a wall and they couldn't explain it. And there were three Stanford radiologists trying to figure it out. Nobody understood, nobody knew what it meant, but it just was like, okay, well, we can't put you back together. Like there's a wall, it just closed itself off and nobody knew why. And so we went for the permanent surgery, which meant removing that portion, so all the way down to my anus, basically. And then they close up plastic surgery over it, so there's nothing, you no longer have a, a hole in your bottom. And then that big empty space where your intestine was, 
they can't leave empty because otherwise your body has a tendency to fill stuff up with bad things. So they pulled out the gristle that's on the inside of my right thigh and moved it in alive, still connected to blood supply, moved it into my pelvis. So they did all of that kind of at once and surgery seemed to go really well. And then my body was up to its old tricks and I had a whole bunch of complications that landed me in the hospital. I had 10 procedures in 10 days. I was under anesthesia every time. And then that led to a wound pump, which led to five or six months being under the direct care of my surgeon at Stanford almost every day. In some ways, that was actually maybe the hardest of all the things that we've gone through was the complications from the surgery. I'm on this wound pump 24-7, which essentially is like a fish tank pump attached to kind of a giant sponge that goes around your wound and that accelerates the healing by creating negative pressure, so a suction. And if the seal broke, they'd have to redo it. And the seal would break like almost every day. So we'd have to get in the car, drive over to Palo Alto, like almost every day from February to July. And the ostomy care at Stanford wouldn't see me because of the wound around it. And the wound care people at Stanford wouldn't see me because of the ostomy. And they actually really hadn't had anybody that wasn't like in really bad shape and in an ICU that had had the kind of problem that I had. So my surgeon was the only one left. So she saw me, I mean, literally in her office, she personally saw me every time. And while I was in hospitalized before they sent me home, they had different surgical teams from all over the hospital trying to figure out how to fix me because I was way off the reservation of what they had experienced before. And they were coming up with new ideas on the fly kind of every day. And they actually referred to it as like, this is less, we're less in science now and we're more in arts and crafts mode trying to figure out how to do this. And they ended up actually creating some protocols and some techniques and even prosthetics that they're now using at Stanford for other people from having to um, take care of me. So last year was a real big mess. <laughs> so when it came to the AIDS ride, obviously I wasn't going to make it. it. happens in June. I was still on a wound pump. But we went down and saw our friends in, in Santa Cruz. Because Santa Cruz is the very first stop. So the, the ride goes from San Francisco to LA. It goes mostly down to one. But the first stop is in Santa Cruz. So we saw our friends right in, and I was really sick. I nearly passed out just from standing up for too long. And so flash forward a year later, <laughs> and I did the ride, which is really pretty miraculous. So I'm under the care of my surgeons, and it was going on. And like it, things were really getting better the way anybody expected them to. And so I told them, I need to be healed in a month. Like, I need to figure this out. Like, we can't keep going like this. I'm going to go into miraculous healing mode. I had a strategy for that based on some research that I had done and in consultation with a guy that I know who does kind of really bizarre sort of health research for integrative medicine. And I strategized this miraculous healing mode is what I called it. Some of it was emotional and then there was like a really strict protocol of supplementation and the doctors initially thought, oh, that's cute. And then in five weeks, I was healed completely. And they kind of fell out of their chair a little bit. And they actually got on board pretty quickly 
and were asking me to write up my protocol so that they could give that to other patients that were struggling with tissue healing. Because again, that's one of the other issues with people with autoimmune disorders and Crohn's in particular is you can't synthesize the protein that you're eating. So you can't build man tissue very easily, which is why oftentimes with Crohn's, people can't really gain weight because you're almost constantly taking from your muscles because you're essentially eating yourself because you can't get enough protein. So my targeted therapy was all around protein synthesis and it really worked. Like that, it turned, like I said, it turned everything around. Within five weeks, I was off the wound pump, totally healed at home and woke up one day and for the first time in six years, I wasn't sick. All of the sickness part of the Crohn's had gone away and and it was like waking up inside of a new body, waking up inside of a new person, which was really pretty shocking. So my friends were writing again this year. They invited me to do it. I had another surgery at the beginning of 2018 to fix some of the damaged stuff from the year before because there were so much problems <laughs> that um, they had to go back in to repair. And everybody was really nervous about doing that at all because of what had happened before. But I healed almost immediately from that surgery, which was in February. By the middle of March, everybody was pretty confident in how everything had healed up. And in April, I started training. So April was really like the start of a new life. And April, May, two months of training, and then rode the AIDS ride. What did you do to stimulate this protein protocol? It's a little bit funny and a little bit technical, but it's got a good punchline in that it works really well. So one of the things that I discovered with my friend who's this researcher, he was doing a lot of research in a thing called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. There's like 15 or something different identified types of this syndrome, but they all kind of come back to the collagen in your body is not solid in the sense of the same kind of thing. Like you're not turning proteins into collagens, which collagen is kind of what holds your whole body together. And so one of the ways that it gets diagnosed is through hypermobility in your joints. So double jointedness, kind of those weird things. Like if you're kind of like a rubbery person, if you've got a lot of hyperjoint mobility, so stretchiness and like double jointedness, you may have some components of this going on. That doesn't mean that anything bad is going to happen to you, but the collagen that holds your body together is not locked together the way it should be. So we were having this conversation and I showed him, uh, basically I could bend my fingers like all the way back to my back of my wrist almost. And he was like, whoa. So one of the ways that they have been treating that sort of naturally is with a variety of minerals, copper being one of the biggest ones. So a lot of your trace minerals that we get from foods are what allows the processes to turn those, break down the proteins into amino acids and then shuttle those amino acids to where they can need used to build new tissue. Which foods provide that type of nutrition? getting it from dark leafy green vegetables, algae or seaweed, and you're getting it from meat as well. So I stumbled across this particular supplement that was called Aquamint, and it is a powdered form of a red algae 
that's from Northern Europe. It's its own branded thing. It gets put into a lot of different products. So I bought it in bulk and it had a really high trace mineral content. Copper being one of them, magnesium being one of them, which is again, all of these minerals are cofactors to being able to break food down and metabolize it, use it for something. I started taking the Aquaman, so that was one of the legs. High trace mineral content, red algae, MAP aminos, which is MAP stands for master amino pattern. So there's a certain ratio of amino acids that your body uses and creates. So some of the aminos we can create, some of them we have to get from food. But it does it all in certain proportions. This particular supplement, they're called MAP aminos, are mimicking that percentage. So they're already in the sort of form that your body would create on its own. So that was the second component. And then the third component was 100 to 125 grams of protein a day. Those three things, that was the protocol for miraculous healing mode. And in some ways, it's kind of like how to build a human. You need to be able to build tissue. And to some degree, it's not all that different than what bodybuilders do. It's just shuttling through a slightly different mechanism. So the red algae was giving me the mineral cofactors to be able to process more of what I was getting. And the map aminos are essentially like, you don't have to digest them, they're already separate. So they just go into your bloodstream. And then one of the things that we know about building tissue is your body has a certain amount of protein needs per day. And if you're trying to heal something, anything, you need a certain amount of what your basal needs are for protein in order to do that. And so calculating that out, like I was needing kind of a minimum of 100 grams, and I was really trying to get more than like 120 grams of protein a day. And I did those three things, and it changed everything. And kind of an interesting measure of success for that became this flexibility in my joints. Now, when I try to bend my fingers back, they only go back to about maybe 30 degrees, maybe 40 degrees. Um, so the stiffness in my fingers that had never really been there before, suddenly I don't have that kind of same flexibility. Interestingly enough, at times when my inflammation has gone up since doing this, my joints become more flexible. Or the less inflamed I am, the more that strategy works. So it's become a little bit of a canary in the coal mine for me. Like I can sort of feel into how solid my joints are as a measure of kind of where I'm at, which is kind of an interesting thing. You've been used by humanity so we can learn something. And you've been the sacrificial lamb and you get to come out on the <laughs> other side way better, of course. So even though you had to suffer, you had to go through this so other people don't. Stanford learned a shit ton from you and are looking at the body differently because of you. And you're looking at the body differently. I tell my children, we're all the scientists, we're all the doctors, but we've given everybody else the responsibility so we don't do the work. We rely on others to take care of us. You know, it sounds like a lot of this manifested out of an emotional imbalance, which triggered a lot of your physiological conditions. Yeah, totally. You talked about your illness being putting band-aids on top of things. This is how the world operates. We don't get to the core. We don't look for the primary cause and deal with that, which is what healthcare used to be through naturopathy. Then it became a different thing, which was sick care of treating symptoms and conditions instead of getting to the root 
of things and quashing it before it gets anywhere. And that yeah. plays across all human behavior of all types in this entire experience. You're doing valuable work. You were your own experiment so you could show a lot of people that we need to be paying attention to our bodies differently. There are ways that we can maintain and repair ourselves through some things that have been here the entire time and the knowledge is here, but you had to get to an emergency to do the investigation, to do the work that everybody could be doing a lot of it themselves, which would put a lot of hospitals out of business. It's a huge thing that you've undertaken. Yeah. There's some amount of truth to that, but I also engage it at a really spiritual level. I mean, we're talking about sort of the mechanics of what I've done, but pretty early on, once you sort of have any kind of diagnosis of anything, everybody that you talk to knows somebody has been through it. I mean, you hear all the stories, and one of the things that I noticed really early on was the people that had gone through this particular kind of process with IBD and came out the other side and were living relatively normal lives were people that embrace the transformational aspect of it. So I used to call it the Dharma disease, because it will take you all the way up to the edge. You don't die from Crohn's, you die from malnutrition. It's like as close as you can get to a death sentence, but just far enough on this side where there's work to do. And and the people that I knew that engaged or had met that engaged that transformational process in themselves were the people that were good. The people that have not, and I see that when I get the infusions at the gastroenterologist in the waiting room with giant 64-ounce sodas and McDonald's, the people that aren't are really suffering. Like, I suffered, and I certainly went through the fire, but not because I was not paying attention to those things. I was just going about it in a way that felt right to me. I'm not really afraid of ayahuasca. I've done a significant amount of sort of psychedelics and peyote ceremonies and stuff like that in my life when I was younger. And it's just not something that I'm personally interested in at this point in my life. So my spiritual practice became something else. But it was a vital and very necessary component. And actually without it, even if I'd gone through the mechanics of fixing myself, I was doing this while engaged with some of the best doctors in the world. And they didn't really care what I was doing, but they were also not pushing me to not do it. They're all great, but they're running scripts. They're not trying to get to the bottom of things. They're doing step A, and they're just funneling you down a path. They're working on you out of a book. And, yeah. and yeah. the book does not have all the information. The unavoidable world, the avoidable world. You went through a lot of yeah. the avoidable world that had some of the unavoidables attached to it based on your condition, but you might have been able to hold yeah. off a lot of this in the beginning if you knew something that could have saved your body from having to keep your heart and mind from destroying it. Yeah, and I think that that flashpoint was probably like two years even before I got sick. By the time that happened, it was too late. There is this thing called legacy pain whereby this yeah. could have been something that happened to your great-great-grandfather mother down the road that was never uncovered. Another way to look at it is because I was self-aware, I was given the opportunity to go through this process and end up where I'm at. Because if I wasn't self-aware, I wouldn't have ever made the choices that I made. I do think that there's a really big component just for everybody of like, when you're doing it, when you're going to your job, when you're going home to your wife and kids, whatever you're doing, it's not a single decision being made in your head and then you're telling yourself to go do it. Every one of yourselves is making that decision with you. You are essentially forcing 
your molecular physiology to choose X in a quantum universe. Like you're pulling out of all the options that are available in a quantum universe. You're choosing this one thing to go do, and you're likely doing it repeatedly. And those things can be of service to you, and those things cannot be of service to you. And the thing is, is that at some point, the things that are not of service to you are going to start to break down at a molecular level, whether you catch them or not. I mean, it's the same thing with people getting cancer or all kinds of things. And some of these things, like you said, some of them are avoidable. Some of them are not. Some people will get sick regardless, and it doesn't have anything to do with whatever's going on with them. I'm not trying to boil everybody down to the same kind of simplicity, but I do feel like there's a, an element to your choosing. Like life isn't happening to you. You're actively choosing it from a very macro view to a very micro view. And you know, moving to Santa Cruz was one of those choices where one of the biggest hats you can give to yourself is changing your environment completely and changing up where you're physically located because that will change all kinds of physiology. I mean, being here exposed me to a lot more sunlight, the ocean, all the negative ions that come from that process, the ability to exercise and be outside all year round. The environment that I put myself into very consciously was for that reason. To some degree, it's a little bit like imagine the life that you really believe that you want. Imagine what that looks like and start living like it is that now and eventually you will catch up to it. And that's kind of what happened waking up sort of in the Ferrari, waking up like an athlete. I didn't set out to create an athlete. I really just trying to stay alive. But in this process, I discovered this other level of vitality. And now I'm interested to see how that plays out. But it started with this really fundamental look at what am I actively choosing to do? Who do I want to be? And how can I start acting like that today, even if I don't feel like I have all of those things? So just being here, getting my feet in the sand on a regular basis, all of those tiny things, they all contributed ultimately to the momentum I needed to push my physical biology back into a state that my body would consider healthy. And the stress is a component of that. Like when you're stressed out, it's felt throughout your molecules restoring it in your fat cells. When I started losing the weight at a pound a day, I was like going through demons. It was daily. And talk about the trauma, all of that stuff was being released into my body like a flood. But it's not an experience I would ever choose to go through. Actually, most of this, if somebody gave you the option, even if you saw the outcome on the other side, I don't know that you would choose it. but. I would almost under no circumstances can I see another way to the life I have now without having gone through what I did. And I think recently Amanda, my fiance, and, and I were talking about this and we did go through a lot and she went through a lot trying to hold us all together. You know, the seven years we've been together, six of them, I was sick, really sick. And yet we both feel pretty similarly. We're sitting around going, oh my God, look at the life that we created out of this experience. And we never would have had it. It's like my examination of Crater Lake. There had to be a violent eruption. Out of that is one of the most beautiful places on the planet that uh, I feel fortunate enough to live that close to. Yeah. Sometimes we have to go through some serious undertaking in order to get to the other side. And the question is, how long do we do that? 
when do we become aware that we're in that? What part of that is avoidable versus unavoidable? You described your experience beautifully, and I do firmly believe that if we start flooding humanity with a lot of healthy cells through a good education and people feeding themselves better, I think nutrition is a huge part of our illness, yeah. emotionally and physiologically. I think what yeah. we put in our bodies either makes us healthy or sick. And I appreciate that you explained it all in such detail and how we can look at this as this is not just your condition. This is our condition. You felt it more severely as everything is a matter of degrees. We're all in this soup of sanity or insanity together, whatever you want to call it. It is all a matter of degrees and you just felt it more than most and took it on and now reflect that back at us. Think of yourself as a time traveler. You could talk to almost anybody and they could select a point in their life that they would go back to and make a change irrespective of how it would affect their life. People would go back to high school and do blah, blah, blah. They'd go back to college and get their degree. Like almost anybody can find a point in their life that they would go back to and make a choice different than what they made. Very few people will look at the choices that they're making today and realize that those are the decisions in five years that you'll be looking back on and wondering if you should have been doing something else. And just like they did in Seinfeld, maybe do the opposite of everything, every instinct that you have. <laughs> do the opposite because you will get an absolute different result. It is one of these yeah. natural laws put into place for us to save us from ourselves. You literally need to change your mind to change your entire life. And you had to go through all that just so you could change your mind. So think about yeah. all the suffering we could avoid if we would just change our mind about what we're doing so we could do it differently and get a different result. It doesn't require anything other than what we already have. There is no savior. We don't need to be saved. Yeah. There is no Messiah. We're the Messiah, man. Change yourself, save yourself, and then you can save everybody else. It's kind of an insult to the creator to think that we're waiting for something else. Are you fucking kidding me? It's all right here. Absolute yeah. knuckleheads. Yeah, I agree completely. And, you know, I think some of that resistance that people feel, or even if they feel the tension around, like, I can't make a change, is this idea of playfulness around experiments. Like, can I do this? If I do X, Y, and Z, will I see this outcome? Can I play with that? The woman who kicked that off for me with the bike, a woman by the name of Jane McGonigal, she wrote a book called Super Better, in which she describes her experience of severe head trauma and she's a video game designer and researcher. She had this head trauma, she was not recovering from it, and she created a game, which she called Super Better, to essentially play her way to healing herself. And then she wrote a really extraordinary book on it. But I think that playfulness attitude takes it out of this kind of seriousness. We kind of look at the world like everything's gonna kill us. The reality is there may be a million ways to die, but there's 10 billion ways to live. You look at everything with this level of seriousness, and I, I do think that that willingness to just play, play small games, and not that those games can't have serious outcomes, but if you look at them as something that is not about good or bad, but is just playing to see what the outcomes will be like and how you feel when you get there is incredibly powerful, particularly in our culture right now, because everything feels incredibly serious well that's the intention because in that seriousness is fear and in that fear is yeah, shutting exactly. you down 
And if we were teaching children how to play in this way, we wouldn't recognize the world. I mean, we could be traveling yeah. five million miles an hour by now. We're living a very two-dimensional existence, always on the threshold of a completely different multi-dimensional experience if we're willing to empower each other, one, with love, and two, with the information and the ability to play through as children to just continue on through that and not be put in a position of survival in unnecessary ways. It's so serious and painful because we stopped playing. We are living out our dystopic movies and books yeah. that we make. Where's the movie about you did something for themselves and created a whole new life because that's what you wanted, because you loved yourself enough to do the work that it takes to actually get the life that you really want. And imagine if we could all just have the lives that we really want versus succumbing to the thing that we think that we're supposed to do, which is not necessarily in our best interest. And you talked about shedding the things that don't serve. Well, part of that is what we put in our body, what we listen to, how we engage, all these things where we're failing miserably because we're not willing to do the work, because we're not willing to provide our children with the education that would eliminate all these things entirely. So how old are you now, Josh? 44. Shut them. What was it like living in Alaska in the late 70s, 80s? Yeah, it was pretty interesting. I probably have a different appreciation of it now that I have my own children because my childhood was so unique in that way. One of the funny things about Alaska at the time was that it had only been a state for like 20 years or something. I mean, it really was still the frontier. I mean, Anchorage is a relatively large city, but half the population of the state lives in one place. Everybody else is distributed amongst one of the largest land masses in the world. And obviously relatively hostile environment to humans by that standard. So growing up in Alaska was outside. Everything was outside. The animals were outside around us all the time. The world was around us all the time. I did have the opportunity to grow up in some parts of my life in a ski resort town, so I spent a lot of time in a mountain. And Alaska has a different scale about it. It's hard to imagine how big and how vast and how wild it is unless you've been there. And one of the marketing taglines is, once you go to Alaska, you never go all the way back. And I think that that's probably true for a lot of people that I met that have visited there. And I don't know that I could ever live there again, but I have a different level of appreciation for my childhood because of that. And, and I think, you know, that kind of pioneer spirit in some ways that my parents had when they went up there, they were trying to kind of escape their families and see how far they could get away. <laughs> I think some of that spirit is part of what has allowed my own adventure to unfold the way that it did. Power would go out for weeks. You have to figure out how to eat and life was staying alive. You were doing what you were doing because that's what you had to do. And to some degree, that's kind of how this particular journey has felt to me was it didn't feel all that extraordinary. It feels more and more so as I get a little bit farther away from some of the things that have gone on and I get to look back at it. Alaska is all the things that you've heard about it and probably 10,000 things more. North to Alaska, go north for us is home. North to Alaska, go north for us is home. It's a pretty magical place and it looks like we're going to be going there in August and it'll be the first time my family's been there. 
So that will be a really pretty extraordinary experience to show them where I grew up, where I came from. When's the last time you saw your parents? My mom actually lives in Ashland. My dad lives in Alaska still, and he was actually here a lot while I was going through everything. He's been here for pretty much all of my surgeries. He stayed with us for a month afterwards, helping out Amanda, making sure everything stayed together. So he was a real integral component in keeping us all going as we went through this process. And I can't even imagine what that experience was like to see your child go through it. But I was uh, thankful to have him around. So it'll be fun to see him and to, again, sort of bring my family to this place that he's called home for close to 50 years. And your parents aren't together anymore? No. What did your dad do back when you were a kid? He was a filmmaker. He did commercial and film. And he was self-made. He went to school and got a fine arts degree in pottery, so not related. And he was a photographer, and he wanted to get into filmmaking. And so he taught himself how to do that and then ultimately created a very successful commercial film company in Alaska, which also created a pretty cool environment for my childhood. When I was a teenager, I'd go work with him, so I got to go all over the state. I've been to villages of, of, of the Arctic Circle. I've, I've been almost everywhere in the state, which I probably would not have had an opportunity to do if it wasn't for his job. So I've you know, flown over glaciers and helicopters and sled dogs and the whole mythical experience. <laughs> Wow, sounds like the National Geographic life. Yeah, yeah, totally. Are you an only child? No, I have a total of six brothers and sisters. I have four from my parents, well, three plus me is four from my parents. And then I have two half-sisters from my dad's second marriage and a half-brother from my mom's second marriage. Your three brothers and sisters from your mom and dad, older, younger? I'm the second oldest, and my youngest sister's 22. My half-sister is 22, so there's a huge gap. And my older sister and I are only two years apart. So we have, yeah, there's kind of three groups of kids that grew up. All three groups had very different lives. My older sister and I had this kind of woolly, wild, Alaskan childhood. My middle brothers and sisters had a little bit of that, but mostly outside of Alaska. And then my youngest sister had a very different experience. With all those kids, when did your dad have time to take you along? Yeah, well, not really sure how that all worked out. But I mean, when you become a teenager, and my parents were separated at that point, so it's like if you're going to spend time with dad, you're going to do it, and there's probably going to be work involved. And I was essentially like a grip. Whatever they told me to do, I'd be getting sandwiches or setting up lights or, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. Probably the most outlandish experience with schooling was didn't have a high school. And so when it came time to go to high school, you had to bus to Anchorage, which is about 40 miles away. At the time, you had to drive over a couple of mountain passes to get there. So we would get on the bus at like 4.30 in the morning and then get home about 4 o'clock or 4.30 in the afternoon. And in the wintertime, we'd get caught in avalanches. It really was pretty bizarre. And I really do have the, I went uphill both ways in the snowstorm. That was a pretty intense experience. And everything that wasn't right around you was really far away. So we didn't have a grocery store in that town either, which meant we had to go to Anchorage to go grocery shopping. So if the roads got cut off because of avalanches, 
essentially had to hope that you had enough food in the freezer to make it through. And at that time, this was like pre-global warming when glaciers actually moved at glacial speed. Most of the glaciers that I grew up with have now retreated several miles while the first 18 years of my life, they didn't move at all. We'd have like 60 to snow by October. And that kind of winter doesn't really happen very much there anymore. But we'd get snow above the door. You'd use the snow banks for refrigerator. You just pack all the food in the snow. Everybody slept around the fireplace, that kind of stuff. A lot of those metaphors really lined up with your experience, your medical experience. All that stuff you just said, it's so wild. The easy roads are not things that I choose. For whatever reason, my experience in this material universe seems to be around really rich, in-depth experiences. And I seem to opt towards those almost invariably. And this last one was a big one. I'm hoping for a little bit of ease and uh, maybe some easier choices in the foreseeable future. You're probably getting a nice dose of contrast right now because you are seeing calmer, more manageable, breathable experience versus the intensity of just staying alive. Yeah, life comes at you like a fire hose. Life got really, really small in this process, I think for all of us. And when that opened up, it, and it still is actually right now, I mean, I'm still pretty fresh into this thing. April was the last, I was not in good shape. So it's not been that long. So it's a little overwhelming. And one of the things that, you know, I learned pretty early on as well was I have a limited amount of energy, as we all do, but I really had a limited amount of energy. And so what I put that towards became a very important decision point. And it's something that stuck with me is how am I using my energy right now? And is it serving me and the people around me and the people that I love and the people that I want to love that I haven't maybe met yet? Am I using my energy in a way that is aligned with all of that. And it's pretty overwhelming because the other side of that, not necessarily opposing, but you know, additional force is I haven't really been able to make a living for six years. And so the financial responsibility has really fallen upon my partner. And how do we create some equilibrium back to that? And it's a very near term thing that is on my mind. You've been given this experience to help others. You've gone down this challenging road you might as well leverage the experience in the program that we have to work within the way we've set up society for punishment and reward and do something for yourself. The world, I think, will give you what you want. You just have to decide how you want to receive it and I think you'll get whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to get the gifts out of this process. Like, I didn't want to come out the other side sort of cynical. I really wanted to embrace the gifts of the experience that seems like it was spinning out of control. And now that I'm feeling the beneficiary of so many of those, it seems incredibly self-centered to think that it was just for me. So not finding a way to share it with people, not finding a way to really be a benefit of, of help to people would be a real shame. I'll tell you what, go talk to doctors. Do what you did at Stanford. I mean, really, this is part of the re-education of the healthcare system in this country. Empower doctors. They need to be able to feel vulnerable enough to say, you're right, we just don't know these things. And these are the things we need to know to help more people. A lot of this, of course, is the preventative work, the taking care of yourself. The most important thing you said in this whole conversation, which is what Alan Watts says, is life does not push us around. 
We make the decisions on how this works and the absolute limitless possibility and potential of the control we have, which I will demonstrate. Josh, think about your right hand. When you feel something in your right hand, raise your left hand and tell me. Okay. Think about your left foot. When you feel something in your left foot, raise your right hand and tell me. Okay. What did you just do effortlessly? You thought about energy where you wanted it to go and that's where it went. Yeah. You put your thoughts someplace and you actually energize that area. Super simple. Actually, there's a great meditation practice that is around moving your attention around. It's one of my favorite meditations. You do similar within the meditative where you're moving your attention and you do the same from the sound, sound in your head and then the sound when it's out of your head. And you do the same experience with the space that you're in and the space outside of your in, and then you essentially work yourself out of that entire experience to where you're inhabiting everything. It's profoundly impactful practice. Remember that where we put our attention and focus is where the energy shows up. Now, imagine if it takes 10 to 15,000 hours to be genius at something. If we taught children about this energy that they have, how to work with that, what could this world look like right now? The hopeful Mark knows that we're just babies right now in a developmental yeah. stage. You happen to take some leaps forward through no choice of your own in many ways and through all choices of your own in many ways to show mm -hmm. us that we have this possibility. We can learn more and we can get more out of what we do. Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you. It's been a great conversation and I'm probably the same way I can talk about this forever. Like I said, it's been a largely internal conversation for a long time and having the ability now to kind of distill some of it and understand it on various levels and talk about it and share it is um, really something quite extraordinary. This is all it's about where we are right now and where we are right now, you're in a good spot. I'm hoping that someone who hears this gleans something. Well, much love to you and Amanda and the girls. Thank and you. Uh, I'm really glad to hear that you uh, have survived your ordeal. And uh, <laughs> we'll get a beach cruisers and cruise around. Sounds super fun, man. Take care, brother. You too. that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I feel very fortunate to know Josh and I'm so grateful that he was able to uh, come on the show and tell us about his experience. It's uh, a miracle that he's still alive and uh, it just goes to show that we do control this experience quite a bit. If you want to find out more about Josh, you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at AirJoshB. That's A-I-R-J-O-S-H-B. And uh, he has a blog, which is medium.com backslash at airjoshb. That's medium.com backslash at A-I-R-J-O-S-H-B. And he has a website, go to step onecom That's go to step one, G-O-T-O-S-T-E-P. O-N-E dot com. Thank you so much for listening. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. 
You can find the shows all archived on Aaronsburg.com, Stitcher, iTunes, and CastBox. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. Whatever you're doing is not working. There's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44.